Thank you for this opportunity. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to a group like this, always. I don't know what you want to hear. I can tell you my story about what's happened to me, the changes that took place in my life. I can tell you that, but I don't want to bore you with, with all those details. we got time for a couple of questions. If you want something, after I get through with my brief remarks, just uh, think of something you want to ask. Uh, I can tell you I've done 30 Masters tournaments. I've done 28 Super Bowls. I've done I don't know how many U.S. Open tennis championships. I've done just about everything CBS had to offer, including dog shows and horse shows and <laughs> barrel jumping and everything else. So I've got some memories of just about all of it. On the way up here, John Weber, who's the chaplain for the Cowboys and who's a good friend of mine and is the reason I'm here, asked me if I had to go back and do it over again, what would I change or would I change anything? And it sort of stunned me when he asked me that because I began to think about all the, all the great events that I've had an opportunity to be a part of and all the great people that I've had an opportunity to meet and think about how fortunate I've been both financially and health-wise and all other ways. And I thought my only answer to him was I would have, I would have come to Christ, I would have discovered to Christ a lot sooner than I did. I didn't make that discovery until just a few years ago. I made the mistake of going through the early years of my career when I was broadcasting all those events, thinking that the only person responsible was me. And I, I did take time on occasion to wonder who was guiding me and why I'd been so fortunate, why I was so lucky. I played football in high school, basketball in high school. I was the Florida tennis championship. I was Florida's tennis champion when I was 16. Um, all the good things that happened to me, I just thought I was responsible for all those, and God gave me that ability, and I took it for granted, never stopping to say who talked to my conscience or who told me what was right and who told me what was wrong. It was just a, a matter of uh, the macho feelings of being a successful athlete and a successful a broadcaster and a successful in business. And I just never really stopped to find out why what was going on why what was going on was going on. Over the course of all those years, and I don't blame broadcasting, I don't blame anything but me, I became an alcoholic. And thank goodness there was a group of friends of mine who interceded and did something called an intervention. And they got together, this group of people, 14 men who were friends of mine, friends that I admired, respected, the commissioner of the NFL, the commissioner of the PGA Tour, my boss at CBS, one of the owners of one of the NFL teams, they got together and met for a couple of days. And each one of them took the time to write a letter to me saying things that they had seen me do that they knew I would be ashamed of, uh, saying things to me that they knew that uh, if I had been conscious or knew what I was doing, I would not have done, how much they cared for me. And thank goodness, about halfway through, a session with them, with those 14 men, when they read me letters that they had written, and each one of them specifying things that they had seen me do or things that they knew I had done of which I would not be proud, how much they cared for me and how much they hated to watch me kill myself, which was exactly what was going on. And in the end of that inter intervention, in the end of the, after they each read their letters that they had written to me, uh, one of them said, we have a letter from your daughter. 
We'd like to read that letter to you. My daughter's my oldest child. In it, she said, among other things, lately, when we've been out together socially, I'm ashamed that we have the same last name. And that shook you. That shook me right to the foundation. It shook me, and I thought, well, maybe something is wrong. I'm doing something wrong, and maybe I ought to take a measure to correct it. And so when they asked me if I would go away for treatment, go away for counseling, go to the Betty Ford Center for rehab, I said, okay. I surprised myself, and I think I surprised all them, too, when I said, okay, I'll go. Because as I said before, I didn't think that anybody was responsible. I, just, I didn't think anybody could, could correct themselves but me. I thought I was responsible for all the good fortune that I had had and hadn't taken time out to think where the guidance that I had gotten was coming from. So anyway, I went to the Betty Ford Center. While I was there, the normal stay, by the way, is 28 days. Uh, they said I, the first five days I was there didn't count because I was so angry, so I stayed 33 days. <laughs> but how long I stayed is not, not the important thing. The important thing is that it worked. While I was there, there were two books you could read. One was the Alcoholics Anonymous Bible, the blue book, which is filled with stories about alcoholics and what they've done to destroy their families or their life or their health or whatever. And the other was the Holy Bible. And I got tired of reading those stories about people that had done the same things that I had done, so I didn't read that book very much. But I did read the Bible. And I started to be filled with questions and answers and, and clues to things that had happened to me. And I started to realize that uh, it wasn't all me who had done, who had been responsible for everything good that had happened to me. There was a supreme being. There was a higher power. There was somebody who was helping me to make those right choices, help me to know which direction to take. And as I started to real, realize that, the more questions I had about turning to Christ, the more questions I had about changing my life, changing my lifestyle, changing the things I was doing, changing the things I had done, the more, more questions I had and the more answers I got, and I just got so inquisitive about, about reading the Bible and the answers that are in the Bible, that by the time I got out, I was convinced that I wanted to find out more and more about what it was like to be a Christian. After I'd been out of the Betty Ford Center, <clears throat> first thing that happened to me, you wonder when you go through a, a, a cure like that, a treatment like that, you wonder, what's going to happen to my friends? Am I ever going to laugh again? Uh, my buddies that I drank with, are they going to still be friends? Are they going to be guys that I spend time with anymore? And you really wonder what's going to happen. Is CBS going to hire me back after I get out of here? You really wonder what's going to happen to your life. And I was sitting at the Palm Springs Airport where the Betty Ford Center is located. I was sitting at the Palm Springs, sitting at the Palm Springs Airport and I had a craving for ice cream. We didn't have any ice cream at the center. And so I got an ice cream cone and I was sitting on a bench in the airport and a guy came over to me. He recognized me and he said, let me ask you a question. He said, do you think CBS is going to hire an old drunk back? And I thought, is this the way life is going to be from now on? Is this the kind of questioning I'm going to... I'm going to be facing every day. Turned out that that's the only time that's ever happened. I beat a lot of people in a lot of places, a lot of airports, a lot of stadiums, and a lot of whatever. And they will say to me, we have a friend in common, being Bill Wilson. 
who founded Alcoholics Anonymous, or we have a belief in common, they know I'm a Christian, or whatever. But it's a different kind of society. It's a different bunch of friends. The guys that I drank with, I don't hear from anymore. The friends that I had then are still friends, and I've made a lot more friends than the kind of people that I drank with and spent time on the bar stool with. So all those fears that I had were answered and answered satisfactorily. After I'd been out of the Betty Ford Center for about three weeks, uh, a minister came to visit our house here in South Lake. He was talking about us uh, coming to his church, and he was. My wife had already been a member of the church before when she was growing up and went to high school at L.D. Bell, and she had been a long-time member, as I said. And he asked me about becoming a member, and I said, as I was talking to him about joining the church, I said. Would you baptize me? Do you know what it is? Uh, can you baptize me? And he says, a little unusual. At your age, I was in my early 60s at that time, and he said, it's a little unusual, but yeah, I can do it. So two weeks later, I was baptized. I was in the tank, and everybody else in the tank was about this big. <laughs> and the minister wasn't a big man. I was kind of worried about him getting me out of the water. But it all seemed to work out. John was standing by in case he couldn't get me out of the water. <clears throat> but at any rate, uh, the feeling, I'm not saying that the, the baptism itself, the physical act of baptism is what made me realize what it was all about to be a Christian, because that's not, that's not what does it. But I felt so good when I came up out of that water. I felt so cleansed. I felt like I've heard people all my life talk about being reborn or being born again, and I knew what they were talking about. I had such a great feeling, a feeling like I've never had before or since. And I can't tell you how that has changed my life. Um, it's made me a much, much better person. It's made me much more appreciative of the health that I have now. I went through a liver transplant two years ago, which really tested my faith one of the things when I was, I was hovering close to death and thought I was going to die at one time, uh, John and another minister were standing at the foot of my bed, and I, was, I had wrestled with the fact that I, have a, I got a new liver. Uh, I got a 13-year-old African-American young man's liver, and it fit perfectly. My health is good. My health is great. In fact, best it's ever been, I think. But there's, a, there's something about lying in that bed knowing that somebody has to die for you to live that really gets your attention. And I worried about that. I worried about it constantly thinking that if the, the operation was going to be a success and did, I did succeed, uh, why did I, did I deserve another chance? I'd lived a full life. I'd lived a great life. I had accomplished so many things. The Lord had been good to me. Why did, I do, why did I deserve another chance? Why did I get this liver? Why did, I, why did somebody have to die for me to live? And I asked John that question, and I asked this other gentleman who was with him at the same time. I said, what? Why me? Why do I get another chance? And they said, as if they had practiced the answer, they said in unison, the reason you got another chance, the reason you lived, is because God's not through with you yet. And if you think about that, God's not through with any of us yet, is he? He's ready for all of us to do his work. And that's what I'm trying to do. 
when, when they said to me, God's not through with you yet, I began to ask myself what the, que- the question about what is it God wants me to do. And I didn't get the answer for a while, but I think as time has passed, uh, and I've had a chance to spread the word and speak the word about what becoming a Christian has accomplished in my life and what it's done for me and how it's made me a changed person, I think I've begun to realize that God indeed is not through with me yet. There is more work to me to do. And that's what I'm trying to do now. That's why I'm here speaking to you, because John asked me and because you people have sat down in front of me. Any questions that you have about it? I just finished writing a book and touring the country uh, in book signing and in meeting the people from all over the country. One week I went from Jacksonville, Florida to Atlanta to Philadelphia to Boston to Chicago in one week signing at book signing stops. It, it seems like a glamorous thing to do, but it's, it's hard work, believe me. And I, I sort of kept a record of the questions that people ask. And most, of, most commonly asked question was, why did you wait so long to write this book? And why now? And the other most frequently asked question was, what's your most memorable athletic achievement? Well, I'll ask, answer that in just a second. But the reason I wrote the book, number one, it was great therapy for me to go back and remember all the people that I had met, and they, they told me in the beginning 85,000 words. And I thought, I don't know 85,000 words. That's going to... By the time I got through, I had over 400,000 words. So the hardest thing to do was to decide what to delete. And I didn't want to embarrass myself. I didn't want to embarrass anybody else. So to cut it out, cut out the memories, and remember the things that I had done and gone through, and the people I had met was was really great therapy for me, first of all, if I didn't ever sell a copy of the book. Secondly, I think the reason I wrote it was because I wanted to emphasize that if you do get a second chance at life, if it does come only come your way like it did mine, take advantage of it. My gosh, don't don't think you're gonna get a third chance and a fourth chance. If you do if you get a chance to do something with your life, take advantage of it, and realize that it's really never too late to make a change. As I said, I was in my early 60s when I, when I was baptized and when life came to such a complete change to me. So it's never too late. And the other question, as I said, was about your most, most memorable athletic achievement, which involves tennis, of all things. Uh, I was at, doing the U.S. Open tennis in, in New York, and I walked into the CBS office that morning, and the producer director said to me, you know, we're on the air from 12 o'clock noon until 5 o'clock this afternoon. We may not have enough tennis. We were on a Saturday. He said, we may not have enough tennis to fill all that time. They're playing the men's mixed senior mixed doubles out on the court right now. Go up on the broadcasting platform, and let's tape that, that match that's going on so if we run out of tennis later on this afternoon. We'll have something to show. So I said, okay, 11 o'clock in the morning, I went up an hour before we went on the air, and we started to tape the match that was going on. And at noon, we started our regular broadcast. We taped for an hour, 
And at noon, we started our regular broadcast. I worked the men's semifinals. Yvonne Lindell and Pat Cash of Australia were the two participants. And I worked with John Newcomb and Tony Trabert, and we did the men's matches. Following that was the women's final between Chris Everett Lloyd at that time and Martina Navratilova. And then after that was the other men's semifinal between Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe. Well, we started, as I said, our coverage at noon. And the match between Cash and Lindell, the first men's semifinal, went five sets. Every set was a tiebreaker. Went as long as it could go. Then the women came on at shortly after 5 o'clock when Connors and McEnroe still had to play. Their match went the limit. Three sets, tiebreaker in every set, as long as it could go. And then finally Connors and McEnroe came on long after 5 o'clock, long after we were supposed to be off the air. Well, I worked... The men's matches, as I said, with, with Trabert and Newcomb, and the men, women's matches with Billie Jean King and Virginia Wade, the great British champion. And so we worked those, and then came Connors and McEnroe. And about 10 o'clock that night, we're still on the air. Trabert, one of my broadcasting partners, said to me, Man, you've been up here a long time. Don't you have to go to the bathroom? <laughs> up until that time, the tennis had been so good that I hadn't even thought about going to the bathroom. But after he reminded me, <laughs> like priming a pump, it was agony. At 18 minutes after 11 that night, the match is finally over. So I sent word down to the CBS office, clear out the bathroom because Patrick is coming down. <laughs> and the fact that I made it, I think, is my most proud athletic achievement. <laughs> Any questions? Yes, sir. That's a good question. What has been the biggest challenge since becoming a Christian, and how do you stay humble? Uh, the second part of that, how do you stay humble, I, I don't think that's ever been a factor. I think I've always been kind of a person whose uh, humility, ego, everybody's got an ego, I know, but it has never been what I consider to be a problem, but working with John Madden for 21 years, uh, th that'll keep you humble. <laughs> um, I, hope, uh, I hope that hasn't been a problem. I don't know. I hadn't thought about it, but I, I don't, and I don't think it has. I think humility is not one of the things that I have to wrestle with. Uh, I am what I am as the present coach or the ex-present coach of the Cowboys said, built Mr. Parcells, you are what you are. Um, the biggest challenge, uh, I think, is, as John, John Wibber said to me, God's not through you with you yet. What does God want me to do? Am I doing what he, all that he wants me to do? Am I conducting myself like he'd like me to conduct myself? Am I being the kind of person uh, in my daily life? that I want to be, that he wants me to be. I think we all wrestle with that, but I hope that answers your question as well as I can. Anything else? Yes, sir. Having done so much in your life, do I still have anything on your to-do list? I, I think anybody who's passionate about, about life and passionate about what they believe and what they want to do, I think 
Yeah, there's some things I'd like to do. I always wanted to do Wimbledon. I never had a chance. I'd like to do another Super Bowl. Uh, I've done a lot of them. Uh, there are things that uh, I think you always have a quest to do. I hope so. As long as you have a zest for life, uh, that, that desire will always be there. I mean, I'd like to go back. I don't want to go back to doing what I was doing. I went five years without a day off. I don't want to go back on that pace again. Uh, but I'd like to go back and do some, some games on a regular basis. I'd like to go back and continue to do uh, some golf tournaments on a regular basis. But uh, I'm enjoying retirement, semi-retirement. I did the Cotton Bowl. That was fun. I did a couple of games this year when Fox ran short of announcers, and they called me and asked me if I'd come back. So I enjoyed that. It's, uh, it's like coaching, I guess. It gets to be in your blood. It's like an addiction itself. You get used to talking with the players and getting the preparation in order, and you get used to, to the light going on and seeing the light and realize you're talking to in the case of the Super Bowl, several billion people. Although if you think about that too much, you wouldn't be able to speak. <laughs> I remember Super Bowl four, I think, was Kansas City and Minnesota. And the boss of CBS, the Super Bowl had not become what it is today, not the event that it is now. But the boss of CBS came into the booth. We were in the Sugar Bowl in Tulane Stadium in New Orleans. And he came in before the game and said, we picked you guys because you, we think you were the best. And I was working with the late Jack Buck. I was an analyst at the time. And he said, we picked you guys. Just do the job you've been doing. Do what you've been doing, so on and so forth. And as he turned to walk out, he said, but don't forget, there are going to be over a billion people watching. I thought, boy, isn't that the way to relax your troops? <laughs> but you don't think about that. Uh, you think about the camera being a person, and that's about it. Yes, sir. <laughs> I changed shirts 26 times. <laughs> not a lot, not many as not as many as I would like, not as many as you would like. Uh, I think because of people like John Weber, because of people. On every team, his counterparts on every team, I'm speaking mostly of football now, the NFL, almost every team has a, chapl has a chaplain, has a, has a gentleman who uh, has a Christian meeting or spiritual guidance of some sort. Uh, some teams are in their management, in their upper structure, like the Colts, for example. John Ursay and Tony Dungy and Bill Polian are all very devout, strong Christians, and it reflects on the team. Uh, some of the other teams are not so devout, not so wrapped up in religion. Uh, I have tried to get the networks to carry the national anthem. They don't want to do that anymore. I tried to get them to cover what happens on the field after the game is over, where the two teams get together and they kneel in prayer. That happens after every NFL game. Uh, you don't ever see it on television. There seems to be sort of an aversion among the hierarchy of the television world that uh, anything that pertains to religion is almost like a free commercial. And they have an aversion to it. And I don't know why. But I think the atmosphere in the NFL front office and the atmosphere of the league as a whole is changing for the better. I can see that happening which I think is only 
only great. Yes, sir. Well, she's the deputy mayor of Jacksonville. That has nothing to do with, with her condemnation of me. But uh, when, when I was sick, when I had the liver transplant, anytime you go through a divorce like I did, uh, I think there has to become a villain. And I became the villain. And with all three of my children, I have two sons and my daughter, all three of my children, I became the villain. And during the sickness time, the time I was in the hospital and the time I was in bed, and when I thought I was going to die, uh, it gave me a chance to, for them to see how strong my faith has become. And for me to say to them, you know, I'm not worried about dying. If I die, I die. I know where I'm going. I know what's going to happen. Um, so I think that opportunity was a blessing in disguise because it brought us back closer together again. I think uh, they have accepted me as their father again, and we have a much, much better relationship than we ever had before. So I'm very proud of that. Yes, sir. One more? Okay. I don't, I don't see the clock you told me it was right here. You see it? Yes. Oh, I see it back there. Yeah. I didn't hear the whole question. I'm sorry. Is there a broadcaster? We had a producer... Uh, who you'd never heard of. It's not, a, not an on-the-air personality. A guy named Bob Stenner. And uh, I don't know what John Madden's religious faith is. I don't know. We never, just, we never talked about it. As close as we were for 21 years, we never, that's a subject we never discussed. I know that I gave him an old-timey Baptist hymnal to keep on the bus. And the drivers and I sang some of the old hymns sometime. John didn't join in. But I think that Sir Bob Stenner, he and I talked at length about uh, our faith and about what we needed to do to improve the broadcast, how we needed to improve our lives, how we needed to treat people. And it was a real, it was a refreshing time, the times that we had together. But I can't say that, that uh, Jack Buck was a religious man, but he and I never discussed it at great length. Uh, I worked with Tom Brookshire for a long time. I worked with uh, Lindsey Nelson for a time. I worked with Chris Schenkel for a long time, with Ray Scott, the voice of the Packers. It was a subject that we never really talked about, never came into our discussion. But the last few years when we had this producer named Bob Center, he and I had lengthy, lengthy conversations and still do. He lives in Hawaii now, but we talk by phone quite often. Yes, sir? Thank you. Thank you.